In the 1970s and 80s, a monster hunted the Connecticut River Valley. Seven bodies found, one survivor, and no suspects. I'm Jane Borowski, host of Invisible Tears. I was seven months pregnant and stabbed 27 times, and I survived. My story didn't end that frightful night. This attack on me physically and mentally lingered for years. I'm Amanda Bedard, and I'm Jane's life coach and co-host of Invisible Tears. Jane is ready to share her story, and not just about her attack, but her healing process afterwards. As a platform for truth and healing, we are on a mission to help others that suffer from PTSD and help bring awareness to mental health issues. To hear my story and others, you can find Invisible Tears wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international best-selling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become mentally stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. The detective came and knocked on the door, and he just gave me that solemn look. Just two days earlier, on Saturday, June 3rd, 2000, Donna Ramos had reported her 18-year-old daughter Renee missing. Now, on Monday morning... A detective was on her doorstep with the worst possible news. At a construction site on the edge of town where a Home Depot was being built, workers had discovered the body of a young woman. And I asked him point blank. I said, is it Renee? And he said, well, I'm pretty sure it is, but we still have to wait for dental records. Officially, the body had not been identified, but unofficially, there were no doubts that it was Renee. The missing person case was now a murder investigation. He said, who do you think could have done this? And I said, well, it was probably Jake. In my head already, I thought it was Jake. Did you tell him why you thought that? Because of the relationship they had. She had a black eye about two weeks before her murder, and I remember her in the bedroom just putting makeup on her her face. When Donna had seen the black eye, She asked Renee if her boyfriend, Jake Silva, had hit her. Renee denied it, but Donna didn't believe her. I just told her, you've just got to break up with Jake. You've got to break up with this kid. I said, if you don't break up with him, a black guy's gonna lead to something much worse. What's gonna happen next? She just blew me off. Okay, mom. It's okay, mom. Everything was okay. That was one of the last times that Donna ever spoke to her daughter. Less than three weeks later, Donna would be describing that conversation to the lead detective and her daughter's murder investigation. I'm Susan Simpson. And I'm Jacinda Davis. I'm an attorney and investigator. And I'm a true crime TV producer. And this is Proof, Season 2, Murder at the Warehouse. Proof is a Red Marble Media production in association with Glassbox Media. For the past year, we've been reinvestigating what happened after 18-year-old Renee Ramis went missing in the spring of 2000. And we discovered that in this case, not everything is what it seems. This podcast tells the story of what our investigation uncovered. 
New episodes are released on Mondays, and on Thursdays you can catch our sidebar episodes where we talk about the case, talk to guests, and tell you more about what's going on behind the scenes. You can find additional materials about this case, including pictures, exhibits, and videos of people we spoke to on our website at proofcrimepod.com. You're listening to episode two, The Boyfriend, obviously. If you've ever been inside a Home Depot, you know the buildings are not complex structures. For the most part, it's just one big room. So if you imagine what a Home Depot would look like without any aisles or shelves or checkout lanes, then you've got a pretty good idea of what the Home Depot in Manteca looked like on June 5th, 2000. There was no orange paint yet, just a cavernous concrete shell with a few holes in the walls where doors would eventually be installed. And all of it was surrounded by acres of clear dirt. That morning, the site had been bustling with construction activity. By 9 a.m., there were 50 or 60 workers there. But all construction came to a grinding halt when one of those workers, 22-year-old Richard Bowling, made a horrifying discovery. We weren't able to talk to him for the podcast, but one of Renee's friends that we interviewed had also been friends with Richard Bowling, and he remembers Bowling telling him about it. Rick Bowling, you know that name? Yeah, yeah. the so, guy who found the body. Yeah, well, I've known Rick since we were little kids, and when he told me he'd found her because he was working for like Labor Ready or something, I just was like, oh my God. He told me he had went into uh, picking up the garbage, and he said he found Renee under a pile of trash. Crime scene photos show that the concrete floor was coated in a layer of thick gray dust that was crisscrossed with tire tracks, but otherwise everything was pretty tidy. The exception to this was a pile of yellow insulation that had been dropped in a heap at the back of the building not too far from where, eventually, walls would be put up to block off the building's bathrooms. The construction workers we spoke to, who'd been there when Renee was found, all agreed that the pile had been there for some time. Well, I remember seeing that insulation pile there when we were there the week before. The big pile of insulation was always there. I mean, it had been building up. It was a trash pile. We were walking back and forth by that insulation for two days prior before she was found. And then the day she was found, I had thrown stuff on the pile of insulation that she was under. But when I went to go get more screws, there was a laborer there and he goes, hey, I think I found a dead body. I said, what? I said, no, you didn't. There's, I said, no way. He goes, yeah, come here. And so he got a piece of uh, a two by four stud. He lifted it up, grabbed the insulation with it and pulled it back. And I walked right up to her body. I looked at her and I looked at him and I said, oh, it's just a mannequin. And I took maybe five steps and then I stopped dead in my tracks and it hit me. I said, hold on a minute. Mannequins don't have nipples. Mannequins don't have veins on their breast. And I turned around and I said, pull back that insulation. And he pulled it back again and I said, that's a dead body. That's a girl. When the, um, the labor kid pulled up back the insulation. You, you say that Does that make sense? Kid. Yeah, the kid, whoever, whoever was working for, yeah, he was working for labor ready, I think. And, um, you know, I told the kid, I said, hey, you need to go get a hold of your boss and, and you need to call 911. The kid he's talking about, Richard Bowling, did as he was told and brought his boss over. By then, a few other nearby workers had heard the commotion and start to gather around the pile of insulation. So then the, the supervisor came over and pulled the insulation off her. And there she was. There's only one piece over the top of her. It was like exactly the length of her. It was just laying around on top of her. She wasn't like really, it was just on the edge of the pile. So she wasn't uh, even think, really buried. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I nailed down, I was like face to face with her. And I can tell you what she was wearing. I can tell you what she looked like to this day. She was wearing jeans that were pulled down a little bit past her waist so you could see her black panties. 
she had, I think her top was, was like a maroon color, but it was pulled up so you could see her breast. Renee's jeans were the 90s style that had a lace-up front rather than a zipper. But her jeans had been untied and pulled halfway down her thighs. From the point of view of the Home Depot workers, it had seemed like her black underwear was still in place. But the backside of the underwear had been rolled down, partially exposing her. Her dark red t-shirt had the logo from Limp Biscuit's 1999 album Significant Other emblazoned on the front and had been pushed up around her neck, exposing her entire torso. And although her right arm was still in place through the shirt sleeve, her left arm had been pulled out of the shirt entirely. Her bra was also pushed up around her neck and unhooked in the back, but the straps were still around her shoulders. And according to the crime scene report, there was no indication of forced removal. The workers who found her had known immediately that she was dead. But the ones we spoke to were all under the impression that she had not been there under the pile of insulation for more than a handful of days. You, you said um, earlier we were walking by her for two days. Yeah, so you- they, had told, they had told us that she got killed on the Thursday, sometime Thursday night. We worked there Friday, then we worked there Monday. I was told it was on the Thursday evening that she was killed there. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, is, that, is that accurate or is that not? Well, that's part of why I'm looking into the case. Oh, okay. Before Jake Silva and Ray Gones were arrested for Renee's murder, they both told police that the last time they saw her alive was at the labor ready on Monday, Memorial Day, a full seven days before her body was found. Investigators believe Jake and Ray are lying about this and that Renee was not killed until several days after the trip to Labor Ready. In fact, at least initially, investigators believed that Renee had still been alive for most of the following week. But that would still mean Renee's body had been at the construction site or somewhere else, during a hot Californian spring for several days before she was found. This is what I was told, but they were saying because she was under all that insulation, that it kept everything, like, it kept the smell in from kind of like, you know, like from escaping or something. Um, But like I said, I knelt down. I mean, I was face to face with her. I mean, I was within inches of her. It didn't smell to me. It didn't, there was no smell. Crime scene specialists from the California Department of Justice were called in to help the Manteca Police Department process the crime scene. There was some trace evidence collected, hairs found on and around Renee's body, and swabs from bloodstains or possible bloodstains that were seen nearby. But other than that, little in the way of physical evidence was found, and nothing that was determined to have any relevance to Renee's murder. In fact, it's what wasn't found at the crime scene that seemed to hold more significance. Renee was known to carry her belongings with her wherever she went, but not all of her belongings were found with her when her body was located. Renee's mother Donna recalls that in the days after her daughter's body had been found, she'd asked around about the items to see if anyone had seen them. The only time I went to Jake's house, I think it was on June 6th, and he was there, and we were both crying. I said, does Renee have any clothes or anything here you want me to pick up? Oh, so you saw him like the mm-hmm. day after you found out. Mm-hmm. I went over there and I remember going in the house. I remember hugging him, you know, but I was just so like emotionally yeah. upset that I was just like, oh my gosh, you know, Jake, you know. Was he crying? Yeah. And I said, is there anything here I can take home? I mean, we never found the backpack. To this day, never the back the backpack has been missing for ever. They never found it anywhere. Her shoes too. And her shoes, and I just can't understand what happened to that backpack. And the shoes. Like why didn't she have shoes on? And the shoes were no nowhere in the at the construction site. They never found them. I don't know what happened. Renee's murder was the first homicide in Manteca in nearly three years. Media attention was intense, and in the days that followed, local newspapers reported on the case in detail. Here's our co-host, Kevin Fitzpatrick, reading excerpts from some of those articles. 
A woman found dead Monday in the new Home Depot building has been identified as high school junior Renee Ramis. There were no obvious signs she was sexually assaulted, a police spokesperson said, but she was partially clothed when she was found. Her bra was unsnapped. Police say she was probably dumped at the construction site over the weekend. The coroner determined the body had been there for up to three days. Detectives have collected videotapes from all the stores around town with surveillance cameras in hopes of collecting more clues about the identity of the killer. So far, police have no suspects in Renee's murder. That last line about police having no suspects in the case was not exactly true. Because as soon as Renee was identified, the police had a suspect. They went back to the Home Depot to show photos of him to the workers there. The police came around with pictures of guys with mohawks. Asked if we have seen him around there, but yeah, we never saw anybody around there. The guy with the mohawk was Jake Silva. And after lead investigator Detective Joe Morgan spoke to Renee's friends and family, Jake became the focus of the investigation. For a good reason. Okay, so we just finished having a meeting with Joe Morgan, retired Detective Joe Morgan, who was the lead detective for this case. Shortly before our first trip to Manteca, we had reached out to Detective Morgan and asked if he'd be willing to meet with us and talk about the investigation. He agreed, and we met at the hotel lobby where we were staying. He, willing to talk to us, did not want to be recorded, but willing to share his thoughts. I'm not sure I would say he was a willing interviewee, but he felt that as a public servant, he had an obligation to... It actually felt more like we were being interviewed. It did, did actually. (laughs) I think we were in the hot seat. Pretty sure that that's actually what just happened, but... Yeah, we just got interrogated. (laughs) But uh, I'm holding out hope that he'll, he'll continue to talk to us and eventually agree to be recorded. Spoiler, he never did agree to be recorded for the show. Which is too bad, because as Jacinda and I couldn't help but joke after our first meeting with him, he kind of seemed like the gruff, no-nonsense detective that you expect to encounter in a true crime show. He also should be hosting an ID show. He would be great. He'd be like the perfect detective to host a show. Watch out, Joe Kenda. Yeah. (laughs) Here's another spoiler. No other investigator who worked on this case agreed to talk to us about it. We tried to speak to the other detectives involved, but Detective Morgan was the only one we heard back from. And Morgan told us he gets why that is. He gets why other investigators would not want to speak to investigative reporters. Because, he told us, you usually get screwed over when you do that. But Detective Morgan's personal belief was that, as someone who'd been a public employee at the time, he had an obligation, a moral one if not a legal one, to be accountable to the public. So if we had reasonable questions about the case that he was reasonably able to answer, then yes, he would tell us what he knew. The impression I got from him is that he was equal parts annoyed and curious about what we were doing. I think he found it somewhat obnoxious that we were there in Manteca skulking around, questioning his old department's work on the case. But at the same time, he wasn't that surprised that someone was there to talk to him about it, even all these years later. He basically told us as much when he explained why he'd held onto a copy of his investigative reports for 23 years. I always anticipated that someone would be asking about this case someday, he said. It was very enlightening, not in the ways I'd hoped, because there's a lot of questions we have about this case, and it turns out he does not have the answers. One of the things Detective Morgan was able to tell us about is what happened in the immediate aftermath of Renee's body being found. The whole department was working on this thing for weeks. They had everyone, all hands on deck. He was the lead. According to news reports, 14 police officers were assigned to work full-time on the case. But Manteca was not a place where a lot of murders happened. Most of them had never worked on something like this before. And the only other real senior investigator in the department was Tony Souza. He was, I think Morgan said the only other person in the department that was capable of leading this yeah, kind of investigation. he said he was a really good investigator. By chance, it had been Detective Morgan on duty when the call from the Home Depot came in. So it was Morgan, and not Souza, who was assigned as lead detective. But Souza was involved in the investigation from the beginning. 
And one of the first things he and Morgan did was talk to Renee's friends and family about her relationship with her boyfriend. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, host of The Daily Book Club, a daily podcast where I read wonderful old books one chapter at a time. Simple as that. Whether you want to get engaged and lost in a fascinating story that has stood the test of time, or just relax to a good book, listen to The Daily Book Club to get wrapped up or unwind during your day. We'll read classic stories like Pride and Prejudice, The Enchanted April, The Wind in the Willows, beautiful stories all told from start to finish. And you can even do a real book club. Tune into the Daily Book Club Discord and discuss the readings with other book club listeners. However you want to listen, it's your choice. Subscribe to the Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. New episodes every single day. So sit back, relax, and get lost in the Daily Book Club. Every day in America, 60 million packages are delivered. But we don't always know what's inside. He bent down to pick the package up. That's when the device detonated. Danger is everywhere, and no one is safe in Austin, Texas, as law enforcement hunts a serial bomber for 19 days. From Sony Music Entertainment, Campside Media, and Pegalo Pictures, this is Witnessed. 19 days. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts. In the beginning, I didn't have any reservations or anything about Jake. That's Amber. Earlier this year, Amber and Lori, another one of Renee's close friends, sat down with us to tell us about Renee and her relationship with Jake. I know in the beginning it was different, but I just remember him always being very quiet. He was uncomfortable. (laughs) And Renee's personality, she was very... um, Bubbly. Bubbly, and she was very, you know, kind of energetic, a little bit hyper, um, and just, he was just kind of like, there. There. When they started dating, I remember thinking to myself, like, he's a little strange. Renee's friends couldn't understand why Renee thought Jake was such a catch. But they could tell she'd fallen hard for him. And for a time, Renee and Jake seemed happy together. Were they lovey-dovey in public? I feel like, yeah. They hugged and, yeah, Yeah. holding each other all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Like, constantly next to each other. Yeah. My sense of things from the files, (laughs) from reading reports, it seems like things were going fine-ish, or, like, no one had real concerns for the first, like, six months they were dating until he went away to Oregon for a bit. And it seems like it's when he came back that things started to spiral out. Yeah, that seems to be true. That sounds right. In December of 1999, after Jake and Renee had been dating for about six months, Jake ended up moving to Oregon to live with his mother while he worked on getting his GED. He and Renee stayed together, but their relationship was strained by distance. I do remember him being gone, and I think that was when I was trying to get her to move on and find someone else and I know that she probably did like venture and try different things I don't know that she did cheat on him with you know a couple of times but you know they're young and it was 
Right. In early spring of 2000, Jake moved back to Manteca. Right away, though, he noticed something was off between him and Renee. Jake asked her what was wrong, and that's when she told him she'd slept with someone else. That's when the arguments between them began, and soon the arguments were turning physical. Renee's mom remembers suspecting something was wrong, but didn't know for sure what was going on. She never told me that he was actually abusing her, because I think they would hit each other. Why do you think that? Well, because it was in the police records, too, that they would hit, that they, that she hit him, he hit her, and she hit him back. Renee's friends and family never saw the fighting themselves, but several witnesses told investigators they'd seen arguments between them escalate into physical fights. With Jake and Renee shoving and slapping one another, screaming at each other, with Jake pushing Renee, and Renee kicking at Jake's shins. Yeah, she Mm -hmm. had a feisty side to her. So I can imagine that when her and Jake got into it, like, it was probably bad, like, on both sides, like. Right, yeah, yeah. she would definitely stick up for herself. She was not, yeah, if she was mad, she was not quiet about it. The people who saw these fights did not necessarily interpret it as domestic violence. And in reports, it was sometimes framed as something Jake and Renee were mutually doing. But that framing ignores a stark difference between the two of them. Jake was six foot one. How tall was she? She was five one. So she was really. She was tiny. Even if she didn't tell her friends and family about everything that was going on, it seems like the frequent arguments were taking a toll on Renee. At one point, she confided in Amber that she was thinking of breaking up with Jake. She said, I want to leave him, but every time I look into his eyes, I just can't. I do believe the reason she couldn't leave him is because there was that abusive aspect to it where he's kind of like broke her down a little bit, and now she feels like she needs him or something. Jake and Renee didn't break up, and the arguments didn't stop. Then, in April, Renee realized she'd missed her period. I remember going to Planned Parenthood with her to find out. She came out and we sat on a curb and she had said that it was positive that she was pregnant. And it was like no emotion from her. Then I was like, well, what do you want to do? I don't remember exactly what she said, but I know that it wasn't like she wanted to keep it. So, and then we just sat there for a while. Like, quietly. On the forums at Planned Parenthood, she checked that, like, she wanted to keep it. Oh, really? Yeah, and that her partner wanted to keep it, too. Oh. We don't know why Renee checked the forms the way she did, or why she told Lori she didn't want to keep the baby. But whatever the case, Renee's pregnancy and Jake's reaction to it would later become a pivotal piece of the prosecution's case at trial. But Jake says that even though the pregnancy had been a surprise, once they got over the shock of it, they were both actually kind of excited. When she was pregnant, yeah, it was scary and it was awkward, but we we were going to do what we had to do for the baby. Renee's mother was not as excited about the situation. Donna did not think Renee and Jake were in any position to have a child. On April 14th, three days before Renee's 18th birthday, she took Renee to the clinic to have the pregnancy terminated. And according to Jake, that was one of the reasons for a growing rift between Renee and her mother. I know she was tired of her mom trying to run her life and trying to like dictate her life. She was also right because we weren't in the best position. We didn't have money. We were fucking living on the street. We were a couple of idiot kids, you know? It was just the wrong time. And seriously, what would y'all have done? Like, y'all have a kid. What would you have done? I didn't think we knew. It was around that time that Renee left home, and she and Jake began living out of her station wagon. The arguments between them didn't stop, though. And Jake says one of the things they argued about often was how Renee had cheated on him while he was in Oregon. I think she missed me because I was at my mom's house. 
And I don't know. It killed me, I know that. Did you try and ask her why she did it? Yeah, she had, I don't think she knew. It just happened. That's what we were arguing about when I broke the windshield. When Jake and Renee first moved out into the streets, they'd been sleeping Renee's station wagon. The spaceship, they called it. But as you might remember from last episode, its windshield had been broken, and the two of them had been forced to start couch surfing and sleeping in bushes to get by. But the windshield had not been busted out in some kind of accident. Jake had broken it on purpose. Uh, I remember punching it, I think, or that I hit it with something. I think you punched it. But that was your home. Like a fucking, like, like, put the words right now, like a fucking moron. Because that was our, that was our everything. And all I did was fucking ruin it. After that, Jake and Renee had slept wherever they could. Jake's friend Robbie Mendoza had a car that he kept parked outside of his house. And on nights when Jake and Renee didn't have anywhere else to go, Robbie would let them stay in the car overnight. Jake says that's where they were when they got into their worst argument they'd had yet. Got into bad arguments, and, and I, I made a stupid mistake, and I slapped her. I remember it, too. We were in the car. She was in the driver's seat, and I was in the passenger seat. What were you arguing about? Her cheating on me. Did you just want an answer? She said, why? Well, like, what the fuck? How could it even be possible that she would do some shit like that? You know, as strong as... It was for both of us, you know. Eventually, I would have got over it and it would have been fine. I just, at that time, it was just really bad. The next morning, when Jake and Renee woke up, they saw that Renee had a black eye. You know people are going to judge you, right? People are going to hear that you hit her and they're going to hate you. Of course. They're judging me now. Uh, They've been judging me down there my whole life. I didn't think that she was being abused by him until I think towards the end when Mm -hmm. the black eye. The black eye was the, she's getting abused. But before that, no. She told me that, well before she had told me that it was an accident that he rolled over and it elbowed her and she got a black eye. Um, But then she'd come over and she was staying the night at my house and we were just laying there on my bed and she's like, actually he hit me. And I was like, oh, hell no. (laughs) She probably didn't want to tell me. No, she probably thought that I wouldn't do anything. But Amber did do something. Something that would ensure that just about everyone would hear what Jake had done. I was very upset. Actually, I had gone to a friend's house and I go, hey, I really want to kick this guy's ass I go what's the best way to punch someone (laughs) and he he gave me some advice and uh, he told me that um I should use a fist pack so like you put something in the palm of your hand I guess your punch is a little bit stronger one afternoon as school was letting out Amber heard that Jake was across the street hanging out at the Taco Bell with some other teenagers she decided that was her chance and I had this little Bic lighter And I put it in my hand as I was walking up to him. And Renee was always saying that she couldn't leave him if she looked him in the eyes. So the first thing I did was I socked him right in his eye. And um, he fell back um, into the bushes. And then when he sat back, I swung again and I threw another swing. Amber told us she'd never hit anyone else before or since. But that day, she punched Jake with everything she had. I was definitely in the heat of the moment there, but it was definitely something I had planned on doing because he had just, he'd done something to my friend that I felt like he needed to be punished. How did he react? He stayed there and let me keep hitting him. Um, I don't know if he felt like he deserved it. He didn't really even try to defend himself, actually. So He was just there. He was just there. I asked Jake what he remembered about what had happened at the Taco Bell. Well, Amber told the police there was a time when she, like, attacked you. Like, she physically started hitting you. Yes, she did. Because Renee had the black eye. 
What did you do? How did you react? It made me cry. I didn't know how to act. I didn't know what to think. I, I was just freaked out. And I'm sure as fuck not going to hit her back. I'm not going to put my hands on her, you know. I didn't know what to do. I, I just felt so stupid. I felt so embarrassed. Why were you embarrassed? Because it was my fault. And, and it was all my fault. Amber felt at fault, too. Punching Jake had seemed justified at the time, but then, after Renee's death, she was left to wonder. You said you felt guilty later. I did. I had a lot of guilt. I felt like what I did spurred what happened to her. You know, being humiliated in front of people and called out. I really felt like I may have stirred up something that, you know, eventually led to her death. Because it was pretty soon after that she disappeared. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I definitely, I suffered (laughs) big time because I felt like it was because of what I had done. That afternoon in the Taco Bell parking lot was the last time Amber ever saw her best friend. Five days later, on May 29th, Renee went missing. And exactly one week after that, rumors started flying around Manteca that a body had been found. I remember hearing that for the first time. They found somebody's body at Home Depot. They didn't even say who or what or anything, just said they found the body. Did you think it was Renee when you heard that? I didn't know. But you thought it might be? I was worried that it might be. I didn't know who the hell she was. I didn't know what the hell was going on. Less than an hour after Jake first heard rumors of a body being found, detectives Joe Morgan and Tony Souza showed up at his father's front doorstep. They asked Jake to come down to the station to talk to them, and he agreed. They put him in the interrogation room, and the video recorder started rolling. In this tape, you can hear Detective Morgan begin the interview. The girl that we found out there that you mentioned, that is Renee. She's dead. Okay. So that's kind of where we're at right now with this whole thing. We're trying to find out what happened to her. Do you know anything about this incident? I know I kind of asked you that before. Do you have any ideas on who might be responsible for this? In the interrogation video, you can see Jake's head jerk up when he hears Detective Morgan say the body they found was Renee. But he doesn't initially respond to any of the questions. It takes Detective Morgan a moment to get Jake talking again. Okay, when we talked before, when I first saw you today, a few minutes ago, you said that you dropped her off at Labor Ready. Okay, can you tell me a little bit about that and what was going on? It was on Monday, last Monday. We're talking like eight days or so, seven days. Jake has always said that the last time he ever saw Renee was at labor ready. He's never wavered on this point. In fact, this was what he was saying even before Renee's body was found. I got worried and then one night at KFC. I went went up to the police and I said, you know, she's missing and I'm worried and, you know. Now, was that the night that she first didn't show up or was that the next day? That was like maybe two days, three days later. Okay. And what'd you tell him? Just said that, you know, I dropped her off at labor ready and I haven't seen her since and she's been missing. The police officer Jake spoke to had already reported all of this to Detective Morgan. So Morgan knew Jake was telling the truth here. On Thursday, June 1st, three days after that morning at Labor Ready, Jake had been at the KFC when a patrol officer came in. Jake had approached him and tried to file a missing person report. But since he wasn't a relative, he hadn't been able to. Detective Morgan then asks Jake what Renee was wearing when he last saw her. Do you remember what she was wearing when you dropped her off at Labor Ready? Uh, yeah, it was a shirt that I bought her, the Lint Biscuit shirt, bright red. Okay, what else was she wearing? Uh, yeah, she wearing? Light blue jeans. 
button zipper. They're kind of weird to like tie up. The detectives don't say anything to Jake about it, but they would have immediately recognized the outfit he describes as the one Renee was wearing when she was found. It had been her red limp biscuit shirt that was pushed up around her neck, and she had been wearing lace-up blue jeans, but they had been unlaced and pulled down almost to her knees. Did she wear jewelry? Oh, yeah, she had necklaces on that I gave her. I bought her uh, a hemp necklace, like kind of like this one, but it had a butterfly in the middle, and then she had on an, another one like this, but it had silver balls all the way up and around, and then another one had about six of them in the middle. Renee had three hemp necklaces that she almost always wore. She was wearing them when she was killed. And those necklaces are also, apparently, what was used to kill her. The medical examiner who performed the autopsy, Dr. John Cooper, concluded that Renee's cause of death was ligature strangulation from three separate ligature marks around her neck. It doesn't take long, though, before the interrogation takes a turn. The detectives stop asking Jake factual questions about what happened to Renee and move to the portion of the interview where they try to convince him to confess. It's an interrogation method called the read technique. Basically, it's when investigators tell you over and over again that they already know you're guilty and that they already have the evidence to prove you did it. And all they need you to do is to explain why you did it. In murder cases, the question usually goes something like this. Are you an evil mastermind who plotted to commit this foul crime? Or are you a good person who never meant for this to happen and things just got out of hand? Good people do things that sometimes hurt others. Those are mistakes. But everybody makes mistakes. Do you understand, Jacob? I mean, do you honestly do you think it's me? Yeah, I think there's a pretty good chance it's you. Why? Why would I kill my own girlfriend? Detective Morgan's partner for this interview was Detective Tony Souza. And Souza explains to Jake that they have very good reason to believe that he killed Renee. Why is it all on me? Well, things happen for a reason. People who love others kill others. That don't mean I'm going to, or I did. Well, have you noticed when the woman dies, who ends up being in trouble for it? Have you ever noticed that? Like the biggest suspect would be the boyfriend. Why right? is that? If he loves her so much, why is that? I don't mean I did it. You know? As Detective Morgan points out, though, it's not just that Jake was Renee's boyfriend that makes him a suspect. The detectives have only just begun to investigate, and already they've heard from several people about how volatile his relationship with Renee had been. You know, look at it from my point of view. I've heard a lot of people talk about your temper, the fact that you guys are fighting back and forth, and the fact that she's even hit you. And I know that good people can make mistakes when they're under pressure. Under bad circumstances, people can never kill nobody. Mistake. I would never in my life kill anybody. You who who in this world is capable of committing murder? Can a 12-year-old person grab a gun and shoot somebody else? Why, was she shot? Can a 12-year-old grab a gun and shoot somebody? The point Detective Souza is trying to make here is that anyone can kill someone if they're angry enough. So, Souza asks, what made you so angry, Jake? What made you kill Renee? We accept that as our job. We accept that people are going to be hurt and injured and murdered. Murdered. We have to find out who and why it happened. The evidence is going to show that she was murdered. And the evidence is going to show who murdered her. The evidence isn't going to show if it was an accident or if that person intentionally meant to kill her. Souza was bluffing here about the state of the evidence. Samples have been sent off to the crime lab, but it will be many, many months before any results come back. Right then, in this interview, what they need from Jake is a confession. Or, failing that, for Jake to say something that would prove he was lying to them. If we asked you to, would you be willing to take a polygraph? Oh, yeah. yeah. Isn't that a lie detector test? Yeah. Thank you. That evening, Jake was given a polygraph examination. He passed. No deception indicated. 
But Renee's mother told us that Jake passing didn't change her opinion of him. I just thought, well, a lot of people, a lot of killers pass the polygraph, so it didn't phase me. They, did you see him and they're going, I didn't, he's doing this, I didn't kill her. I didn't, did you kill Renee Ramos? No. Did you kill Renee Ramos? No. What Donna is talking about here comes from a show called Real Interrogations, which aired an episode about Renee's case in 2008. As you might have guessed from the name, Real Interrogations used video footage of real police interrogations to tell the story of how criminal cases were solved. And for that TV show, Detectives Morgan and Souza agreed to be interviewed and recorded. Here's Detective Souza and then Detective Morgan explaining what happened during Jake's interrogation. After asking him to take that polygraph, we told him we needed to set some things up to do that and that we were going to leave the room. And he started to do a few things in the room that kind of were out of the ordinary. We left the interview room for a short break and we were watching Jake in the monitor. It appeared that he was practicing a response to the question, you know, had he killed her? And the intensity in him, as he was saying it, was was great. It was like he's convincing himself that he didn't do it. The theory here is that when Jake later passed the polygraph, it was because he'd been able to rehearse his responses beforehand, and so was able to fool the lie detector. Donna Ramis thinks that's what happened as well. I just, I've heard they, I don't know. I think cops put more faith in them than is warranted. I think he was practicing in there, though. Late that evening, after hours of interrogation, followed by a polygraph examination, Jake is released without arrest. Detective Morgan told us that when Jake passed the polygraph that night, he'd felt like his guts were falling out. He talked a couple times about it feeling like a punch when... Jake passed the polygraph. Like, I think he was convinced Jake wouldn't pass, and he did, and he said it felt like a punch. Because he was expecting a different result. And I think he said later, he was like, you know, took a day to recuperate, got back at it, didn't let that get in the way, which you absolutely should not, because polygraphs don't prove shit. Detectives already have strong suspicions that Jake committed this crime but suspicions were all they had. And you need more than that to make an arrest. He also, so so Detective Joe Morgan clearly thinks Jake is guilty and thought from the start that he was guilty. And like, to be fair, like the script writes itself. You have a dead 18-year-old girl, found out her boyfriend had been abusive, you do the math. But he also, it sounds like he was pretty sure that would be the answer and kept getting frustrated that he couldn't find the evidence He couldn't find the evidence to, yeah. yeah. One of the difficulties that investigators faced was simply how many unknowns there were in the investigation. In piecing together what had happened to Renee, Detective Morgan was basically starting from scratch. Well, he, he went back to like, uh, what, how did he describe it? He had a word for the, um, the absolutes. He only worked in absolutes. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. The absolutes in this case are few and far between, but roughly speaking, here's what we know to be absolutely true. On Memorial Day, Monday, May 29th, Jake, Renee, and their friend Ray left Fuji's house to go to Labor Ready, looking for work. But only Renee was actually able to sign up, so Jake and Ray left her there and went to sleep in a park while she waited to see if she'd be assigned to a job site. Renee didn't get assigned anywhere though, And three witnesses who were at labor ready that morning 
told police they saw Renee leave, alone and on foot, around 10 a.m. The next morning, on Tuesday, May 30th, Jake returned to the labor ready and asked the woman who was working at the desk if Renee had come back in. The woman told him she hadn't. Two days after that, on Thursday, June 1st, Jake was hanging out at the KFC when he saw a police officer. He approached him and tried to report Renee missing. On Saturday, June 3rd, Renee's mom was finally able to file a missing person report, and Renee's friend Amber started posting missing person flyers around town. On Monday, June 5th, at around 9.30 a.m., so pretty much exactly one week from when she was last seen at Labor Ready, Renee's body was found under a pile of insulation at the Home Depot. She was wearing tie-up jeans and a red limb biscuit shirt, the same outfit Jake says she had on at Labor Ready when he left her there seven days earlier. The next day, an autopsy is performed, and the medical examiner concludes that Renee had been dead for approximately three days before she was found. So, those are the absolutes that the police are working with, and all of this left them with questions they could not answer. They believe that Jake had probably killed Renee, but if he did, then how and when did he actually transport her to the Home Depot? This is why police became very keen on finding evidence that Jake and Renee had been together after Memorial Day. That would prove that Jake was lying about when he last saw Renee alive. And it would fit better with the timeline they were trying to piece together. And in fact, over a dozen witnesses did come forward and said that they had seen Renee after Memorial Day. Some of them said she'd been alone at the time. Some said they saw her with Jake. And some of them described seeing Renee with men they couldn't identify, but who were definitely not Jake. And with that many witnesses all saying that they saw Renee after May 29th, That seems like proof she was still alive after that point, right? Well, not so fast. Those witnesses and their stories were kind of all over the place. They contradict themselves and each other. And it's obvious that not all of these sightings can be true. Some of them place Renee at the opposite sides of town at the exact same time. So how do you figure out which of these sightings were real and which were not? Which of these witnesses actually saw Renee after labor ready? Joe Morgan. I also said none of the people who um, claimed to have seen her walking around, none of them were like ironclad witnesses. And he didn't put much weight into any of so that. I was asking, why did they decide certain witnesses who said they saw her in certain days were the ironclad ones? He's like, well, then none of them were. And he said it was being reported in the paper, on the news, the high school kids, the whole town is talking about it. Rumors are spreading everywhere. Mm-hmm. And he was trying to deal in absolutes and it wasn't going anywhere. Those high school kids and their rumors were another complication in this case. Because most of the witnesses were teenagers. They were friends of Jake and Renee, who were both 18 years old. One thing that was hard was that the people in this case were all juveniles or juvenile adjacent. Um, You have to be delicate with them because they said, quote, they have very fragile statements. You can't pressure them too much because the info gets worthless. Despite these complications, the investigation into Renee's murder kept forging ahead. Investigators kept interrogating Jake Silva, kept interviewing his friends, and just genuinely kept the pressure up, hoping something or someone would crack. After all, for obvious reasons, Jake was the lead suspect. He was Renee's boyfriend, he had a temper, and he'd been violent with her. That's why I was such an easy target, because everybody was so mad at me for beating Renee and being a bad boyfriend to her. I was a dumbass kid that fucking hate. I mean, it gives everybody tunnel vision. They don't focus on me. Jake's complaint about investigators having tunnel vision isn't unfounded. There were hundreds of tips called into the Manteca Police Department, each of them assigned to one of a dozen or so officers for follow-up. A number of those tips were about Jake, all of which the police followed up on promptly. But there were a lot of tips called in too that were not about Jake. And a lot of those tips were never investigated at all. Like when a woman called in to report that a man she knew, one of her husband's friends, had been with Renee two days before she died. 
And that man was now acting super shady and seeming real nervous whenever Renee's death was mentioned to him. But the police never called her back. Or when two different people, on two different nights, from two different bars in Manteca, called in tips at a man who worked at the Indies Car Wash across from Home Depot. His name, they thought, was Quincy, though they weren't sure, had been making statements about how he'd killed the girl and how they were going to find his fingerprints and send him back to prison. The detectives, though, didn't contact either of those tipsters to find out more. Or when the security guard, who worked at the hotel across the street from Home Depot, called in to say he'd been working overnight on the Friday before Renee's body was found. A little after midnight, he'd heard screaming and loud noises from the direction of Home Depot. And then, not long after that, he saw a man sitting in a green Chevy Blazer parked on Yosemite Avenue, not far from the dirt road that led to Home Depot. But investigators never called the security guard back to find out more. After all, Jake didn't have a license and didn't have access to a car, so the security guard's tip couldn't have been about Jake. It must not have been important then. Investigators had been hoping to solve the case quickly, but then a month passed without any arrests, and then another month passed, and then another. Three months on, the detectives had their suspect, Jake Silva, but they didn't have any evidence that they could make a case out of. Detective Morgan told us, though, that he thinks it would have only been a matter of time before they got there. Everyone had been working so hard, and if he and his team had kept tracking down leads, kept talking to witnesses, they would have broken the case. Eventually. But they never got the chance to do so. And then, in like early September, he was suddenly thrown off the case. So everything from that point forward, he has little insight into. I wonder why they were getting pressure to solve it. Like, Because it's the biggest fucking murder this city's ever had. Yeah, but when... Didn't you want to be right? He told us, he was like, yeah, the bosses kept coming to me like, have you solved it yet? Have you solved it yet? Have you solved it yet? He's like, no, and that's not helping. Like, that's not actually advancing anything here. So there was a lot of pressure. They thought he was going too slow. And I can see why, when he was describing how he investigated cases, how a chief who was, like, really eager to get the salt might not want the methodical, meticulous dude doing it. He said he went into the chief's office and said, if you have a problem with me or or if anyone has a problem with me, just take me off of the case right now. And he said, you've never seen a, a, a man look so relieved in your life as the chief did. And then right then, he's like, okay, you're off. Sue says, lead. Detective Morgan told us when he went into his boss's office and said, put Sousa in charge if you think I'm not handling it right. He thought Sousa would become the lead and he'd still remain on the case under Sousa. That's not how it worked out, though. Morgan was thrown off the case entirely, as was everyone else in the department, with the exception of one other officer named Kenny Wells. You went from a case you had like 16 people working on it to just two. It became an open, everyone pitching in kind of thing to Susan Wells have got this and they're going to run with it. As Detective Morgan remembers it, it was the same day that he was kicked off the investigation that they received a phone call from a witness who said he had some important information to share. I want to talk, the witness told them over the phone. I've got more to tell you. And that Susan Wells grabbed their recorder and ran off. Joe Morgan. He asked, do you want me to come along for help? And Susan said no. And Morgan said, oh, there goes the hot shots doing their case. Since Detective Morgan was cut out of the case, he can't tell us what happened from that point forward. He didn't go with Susan Wells to talk to the witness. But in his interview for the episode of Real Interrogations, Detective Sousa explained why that phone call had changed everything in the case. We wanted a witness to come forward that could provide us with information that only someone who was there and someone who watched Renee get killed would know. And we found that individual. next week on Proof. I remember it being Memorial Day because that's why we were partying. Because it was a holiday? Yeah. This is over at Home Depot. What time did you get over there at Home Depot? Around, kind of close to dinner. What was going on over there? 
bunch of fun, actually. A bunch of kids having just drinking. Just drinking? There's a lot of people there. It was a big party? Yeah. Okay, now did something happen during that party? Ty and Jake Silva strangled her with their own bra strap and then screwed her and then dumped her. How do you know that? Because I saw him strangling her. You've been listening to Proof, a podcast by Red Marble Media in association with Glassbox Media. We'll be back next Monday with episode three. Send us your questions and comments at proofcrimepod at gmail.com. We'll respond during our bonus episodes, Proof Sidebar, on Thursdays. Kevin Fitzpatrick is our executive producer. Our logo was designed by Drew Vasovsky, and our theme music is by Ramiro Marquez. Audio production for this episode is by Michael Ulatowski. Our social media manager is Skylar Park. And thank you to our sponsors who make this podcast possible. Follow us everywhere with the handle at ProofCrimePod and on our website, ProofCrimePod.com. And lastly, a note to our listeners. If you have any information related to this case, we'd love to speak to you. No matter how small a detail it may seem, it just might be more important than you realize. You can reach us by email or leave us a voicemail at 929-267-3172. That's all for this week. Thanks so much for listening. 